Welcome to Centering the Margins. We are happy that you are here. My name is Michael Betts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Cisco Ramos. Centering the Margins is a podcast series that delves deeply into the issues, experiences, and pedagogical practices that inform a new guidebook that Cisco wrote and recently published called How to Teach Contentious Issues, a Practical Guidebook for Educators. Hello, Cisco, and welcome. Can you tell us a little bit more about the guidebook? Absolutely. Welcome to Centering the Margins. In 2015, you know, I was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania when the Baltimore uprising happened. And as I mentioned, it was 2015. And at the time, Freddie Gray was just murdered. And so Baltimore citizens collectively grieved and protested in the streets. And when I was teaching, my students walked through the door and the last thing they really wanted to do was to discuss this week's reading. And honestly, it was the furthest thing from their mind. They walked through the door. And that was the exact moment when this entire idea of, you know, truly, how do we put together a classroom that could methodologically walk people through marrying research and practice at the same time and putting it in a way where it was really digestible for really broad audiences? At the at the end of the day, this whole entire conversation is about generating empathy. And like, yeah. what does it mean as an educator to be allowed to empathize openly with your students and facilitate? the discussion of like the empathy that that you have with some of your students that some of your other students may not have towards other students like how do we how do we facilitate all of that which is thus leading us to this thing called a contentious conversation so you know when you talk about empathy the the person who i think if you're black or brown you know there is this long long tradition around either um, memorializing people by their names, right? And most recently, it's around this whole idea of say her name. And, you know, one of the things I, um, that really impacted me, and perhaps this was a way I can understand my own students and can uh, empathize across a whole lot of um, axes of identities. There was a man named James Byrd Jr. who, um, when I was growing up, I believe it was in 1997, this was a black man um, who in East Texas, small town East Texas, was walking home one day and he was stopped by three Klan members and they tied him in chains to the back of a truck and they just started driving. Um, and it was the first time you start to actually realize and see um, just the, the cruelty um, and the inhumanity with which a lot of um, our brothers and sisters are treated. And so it very much came this thing, you know, and I didn't know it at the time. Granted, it's 1997 and James Bird Jr. That was the first time, you know, I was, I believe, uh, 13 years old. And that is something you're learning. So this became this very clear experiential link between, you know, I don't necessarily know sort of what the experiences are of black and brown folks um, in Philadelphia or Baltimore, because I'm, 
you know, I'm from the US uh, Mexico border. I'm from West Texas. And there is a limit to how much I can relate just because we're right. from very different contexts. Right. And at the same time, um, it's the same uh, underlying dynamics that have influenced our lives, whether we're talking about white supremacy, we're talking about racism, we're talking about different forms of uh, patriarchy. In Mexico, we call it machismo mm -hmm. uh, for short, um, that shapes people in very unproductive and I would argue very harmful ways. So when you have these kind of experiences and you can relate to people that you've never met in your life, um, it opens up the door to, to so many things that we're just hiding just beneath the surface. Yeah, man, that's, that might be the story that we just cut and paste. That is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and the, the thing, the thing is, I mean, if I could, I can even go any further. I mean, the thing is I was, I remember being 13 years old. Um, and then the question is again, how we, how we re relate to each other across these different lines. Um, you know, if you're a parent, how do you talk to your kid about that? Mm -hmm. You know, and this is something I've seen a lot pop up recently in um, a lot of different public outlets, you know, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I'm, you know, Michael, just to be abundantly clear, I'm Latino. I it, am from a very long line of folks from the borderlands and from Mexico. And one of the things that I've seen in, um, the African-American community is just having to explain to your kids, like, this is what it is. This is what differential treatment is going to look like. You know, colloquially, we call it the, or it's been called the talk. Um, yep. But that very uncomfortable dynamic where how do I explain this kind of stuff to my kid? Uh, because I still want them to be a kid. But for the sake of me loving them, I need to tell them this so that they can, they can, they can stay alive. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's the part, again, um, I'm not black, but I understand deeply um, some of those underlying um, tensions and emotions. Well, and, and the thing is, you talk about not being black, and I think there's a conversation at some point that we should definitely delve into with relation to the framing of oppression in in this country and in a lot of academic spaces you know, I'm an Afro-Indigenous man. Uh, I, I really do understand and am impacted by what it means to to be Black uh, and the yeah. capital B in front of that. Yeah. But I find it interesting yeah. that in this country, we won't put that same capital B on the Brown statement. You know, we've we've made it a dichotomy rather than it being a, a, a spectrum. Um, yeah. And there is a point where we do know that Brown individuals are subject to certain discriminations and certain uh, uh, stereotypes as far as are thrust upon them by yeah. you know many a white colleague that they may have. So mm -hmm. at some point, I do want to jump into you know yeah. uh, how your experience and my experiences may differ, but because we are both people of color, uh, you know we are impacted in whatever that way may you know show up. And, you know, yeah. I also want to acknowledge that I'm, you know, I'm a cisgender hetero man. So like, mm -hmm. I know that I have certain privileges that my, uh, you know, uh, non cisgendered trans or, or, or uh, woman counterparts don't have. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's being worked out in places like Kentucky, where we're watching, you know, Daniel Cameron and company have brought charges against officers yeah. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. 
putting bullets in the wrong places rather than talking about the fact that we did murder, you know, another black woman. So I know Mm -hmm. that there are certain privileges that I'm afforded. And then I also know that I do have experiences that you wouldn't have experienced because you're not black, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those two things or all of that together can't stand. And we can't, again, center the margins so that we can bring up the person who is, is most impacted. And that means that we all get free, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's precisely it. I mean, we talk about centering the margins all the time. For me, you know, one of the great joys I've had, and I think privileges and gifts, I think is the right word. Um, you know, being from the borderland, you see exactly, and this comes from um, Gloria Anzaldúa, how the first, the third world grates against the first and bleeds. Mm. And, you know, you, we, we have all of these, you know, I think one of the interesting things about uh, being in the interior of the United States, interior meaning not the borderlands and what that, sh- how that means to different people is going to mean a whole bunch of different things. But basically, you know, we're living in North Carolina right now, um, lived in Michigan and a bunch of other places um, in the Midwest. And it's just an entirely different frame of mind. You know, if your point of reference, at least along the borderlands, is very much framed by colonialism. Right. And, you know, not necessarily in in this abstract sense of, you know, being an intellectual, but I mean, very much like you see a fence. Um, You know, we we meaning uh, my wife and I, we flew from El Paso back here to North Carolina several years ago and we saw little children being deported uh, in the airport. Um, So there's no filter about the effects of foreign policy. Um, and domestic policy, and it all unfolds in very—I'm uh, just going to say—interesting and unfiltered ways. There's, there's no question about that. Um, right. It so, almost feels like you want to use the way we described slavery back in the day, and a lot of older Black individuals describe slavery as a peculiar institution. It feels like that's almost the right phrasing in some ways. Well, it, well, it, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Right. So the way that I would, I would. Um, I wouldn't even, not necessarily a peculiar institution. I think of it more as like, you know, I am, I would argue from a different um, historical era, if you will, like me, meaning I'm, a, I'm from a different uh, historical and cultural location, right? From the US, right. uh, Mexico borderlands. Um, my mother is from Mexico. My dad's from El Paso. Um, Spanish, Spanglish, English, all kind of smashed together. Yeah. Um, in a in a creative way. Um yeah. and you know, I think at the borderlands you just see the limits of of a lot of these terms um that Americans like to to put out there. You do. Um what is freedom, what is liberty, uh, what is equal treatment or protection under the law? Um and I think that is something that, at least from my perspective, that I have shared with a lot of my um, fellow black and brown friends, mm-hmm. where we talk about the limits of meaning or the limits or the caveats that come with our existence. There was a really good um, book by a sociologist named Margaret Somers called, um, I believe it's called Genealogies of Citizenship, published in 2008. And one of the best, you know, and let me take a step back. So Margaret Somers was a sociologist at the University of Michigan. 
she writes this incredible, incredible work, and there is a good chunk of it devoted to the response to Katrina in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And one of the lines that I've not forgotten that I think ties a lot of different people together um, in a bunch of different ways is that she said, um, and I might be paraphrasing, you know, it was as if there's a quid pro quo market exchange and that this notion of citizenship itself has been contractualized. Wow. And that's sort of what, where we're at right now, where, you know, to what degree does someone really belong in any kind of society? Well, it depends how much money you have in the bank. Right, right. And, and if you're poor, uh, if you're black, brown, and poor, mm. so right. again, right, this sense of conditional belonging where um, I think is something that a lot of people can relate to. And I think that in a lot of ways is a very, for folks who, at the, who are at the margins, a very universal experience, interestingly enough, um, where I have no idea what it means to be LGBTQ, not my experience, right? right. but I think that very um, idea of a conditional sense of belonging is something we can absolutely talk about. I, I really am moved by the idea of, of conditional uh, sense of belonging. And I feel, I feel like we should probably find some time to really delve into that. Um, um, because I'm like, I don't, yeah. it makes me think of a lot of things, but I don't definitively know if those qualify. That's part of the reason why I'm like, Ugh, I want to talk about that, but I don't know if that qualifies. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that, but I don't know if that qualifies. Yeah. Um, so you, you, cause you've been in that situation, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's, uh, I don't know. Let's think of something. And not to completely pivot off of that idea, but talking about other ideas that you want to define, but are misinterpreted socially. Intersectionality is one of those. Oh, yeah. Um, Give me an Uh, example. We define the word intersectionality by the number of of, uh, identities that you possess, which is not necessarily inaccurate, but it is not what the initial spirit of uh, mm-hmm. when Kimberly Crenshaw was after when she defines what the words intersection or a word intersectionality means, you know, we, we go back to the legal brief that I think came out in yeah. 93, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and where she initially wrote about this, um, I think it was Stanford law review, if I'm not mistaken. And she was talking about, so we have these cases where we have women who are women and black and the court is not seeing both of those things as such to be able to like do anything for them. So they're like, you're in one class or the other, you can't be in both. And so you're then injured by the fact that you're in both. And so that's where I'm like trying to make sure that I'm not doing the same thing, but socially we've made it. Well, however many, what you call it, you have, like that's your intersectionality, which is not, not right. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not right. And I, and, and to be quite frank, it's a, it's a really shallow interpretation um, and, and take of what was originally written and the way that I understand this. Um, and um, you know, it's, it's this kind of, and we'll see if this makes sense, but with a lot of Brown folks who emigrate to the United States, you know, we are, there's a hyphen that exists when yeah. we describe ourselves, right? Yeah. Mexican-American, Cuban-American, Haitian-American, um, 
you know, and there is a lot of um, complexity within our identities, uh, ethnic and racial identities in Latin America. This is sort of where you can have race and colorism and racism all smashed together. And, you know, you can talk about these terms, but then you have to say like, okay, um, what's the context behind this? Because I need to root it in something because, um, you know, in a lot of um, cases in Latin America, it really is, you know, it depends on, you know, who else is in the room? What's the context? What are we really talking about? Yeah. So there's a level of nuance that you just don't have here. Um, it's really, are you black, brown, white, other? Right. Are you, right. are you Indian? You're, you're are you from, Asian? Right. There's no, right. like <laughs> I'm from Southeast Asia and I'm from X, Y. Nobody cares. Like, like that's truly like as, as bad as that sounds. Um, you know, that's sort of the, me- the, the subliminal message I've received whenever I'm talking about that kind of nuance. So when I say like, you know, well, my, my mom is from uh, Chihuahua, Mexico, my dad, El Paso. I don't have an accent. I speak Spanglish really, really well. Spanish, it's kind of like, it depends what kind of Spanish because right. you're street Spanish, there's more formal Spanish, um, you know, and those are, those are different phenomenon. Um, and so you come here and it's sort yes. of, you have brown skin, you're Mexican. You're either Mexican or Middle Eastern. And it becomes this dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's truly it. Um, no. You're one or the other and there's no room to negotiate that. It's either this or this. And so you're really putting this, um, um, you know, hor- horrible space. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but you're really putting this, this tight spot where right. you have to choose either you're American or this. There's no. It, it's you're limited. You're limited. Um, it's the effect of. I mean, it, why would we? We would never do that with with something like food, right? There there are yeah, different kinds yeah. of hamburgers for a reason because they have different flavors. They come from different places. They represent different people and different things. I, I you don't just. There's not one hamburger. And so if we only had one yeah. hamburger, and I'm intentionally using something as trivial as food, not to trivialize the conversation that we're having, but to, to, to say yeah. like people would would be up in arms about something like that because it's very delicate. Why we don't extend the yeah. same courtesy to human beings makes no sense to me. And why we allow the yeah. identity of a human being to be defined by people who are not that person also is beyond me. So one of the one of the, my favorite philosophers, his name is um, Will Kimlicka, uh Canadian. Um, but it gets into his realm, this whole idea of like recognition, you know, what you call yourself versus how others define you. Right. Um, I would argue that's, that's truly like one of the most central aspects. And I think is at the forefront of every, I'm not, I'm trying not to speak for everybody, but I'm going to say most black and brown folks that I know where there is this constant negotiation, what do I call myself and what do others call me? Right. And there's different really random ways that this plays out. Right. So um, the kind of English I talk, the kind of clothes I wear, um, you know, thinking about like what school you go to, mm-hmm. um, thinking about like, I mean, what you teams know, you like? you, yeah, what teams you like, what kind of haircut you have, right. um, are you clean shaven or not? Um, yeah. it's, it's absolutely wild how a lot of this stuff plays out in very practical ways. It's funny you talk about that. Cause it makes me think of if we can talk about other philosophers and people, there's an American yeah. sociologist from the, uh, the mid 1900s, uh, Charles Horton Cooley, who mm-hmm. had this whole notion of the, the looking glass self. So mm. we, as 
people, and he's just talking about people in general. And I think I, I like how you're positioning it even further, but he's talking about people in general. Our entire disposition of who we are is developed based off of what we believe people see see us to be. So we're yeah. constantly doing that thing. Well, like, how, what does Cisco think about, you know, the shirt I'm wearing today? Well, does he like it? Like, yeah. you know, you do all of these adjustments to yourself to make yourself appear cool or wanted or whatever. And then add to that these racializations, uh, uh, these nationalistic tendencies, you know, uh, do you have an accent you talk? Uh, you know, yeah. the idea of what personal space looks like. Um because mm -hmm. in certain countries, personal space is not it's nowhere near what it's been in the United States. Now, I will say that COVID will probably shatter that. Um, but that's that's some of the stuff that we are that we're looking at, and and kind of going back to what you're saying, like you know, what what does it mean for you as a human being to have to adjust yourself based off of the way you will be perceived by others? I mean, I, I put it this way, man. I think, I think the central thing at stake, to be honest with you, is um, potentially losing the right to define yourself. Yeah, I think that is one of the biggest things at the core of um, identity: how we define ourselves. Um, you know, there's, you know, simply because there's so many different ways that, you know, the world tries to shape us, and. You know, I can't imagine going through life, this one or next, um, without having that basic sense of self, without yeah. understanding my own history, my own culture, without having both feet on the ground so that wherever I go, um, I take my sense of home and self with me. I, 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 can't, ima I can't imagine that. So, so you say that this is, I think that's a really good segue kind of into what this whole idea of having how to have contentious conversations is, is predicated on. Um, Absolutely. This book has some pretty defined guiding principles. Um, and it, for me, I think that, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier surrounding, you know, uh, Freddie Gray um, and, and how uh, it impacted you and how, you know, yes, I don't, I, you as a, as a, as a non-black individual can see mm. the struggle and pain mm. and what it's causing your students to feel. Um, yeah. How does this book help you as, 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 uh, as Adrian Marie Brown says in emergent strategies, how does it help you to be present for your students? Talk about the, those kind of three guiding principles surrounding this book. Yeah, sure. So there are, um, so there's a, there's a lot in there. Um, and thank you for raising that. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is absolutely critical um, for educators or people who are just trying to find um, a sense of connection across lines in a bunch of ways. Um, for educators, I think, you know, oftentimes when we think about content or pedagogy or we're, we're doing lesson plans or we're prepping for a course for the semester, um, there seems to always be an implicit sort of framing there that it's always on the content and the content's relationship to the student. And here I'm really trying to encourage folks of, you know, how do I make another, you know, push this understanding further so that it's not just the content, it's not just the focus on the student, the grades, the lessons and things that we talk about, you know, seemingly all the time, but how do we insert the sense of self ourselves into the classroom? 
and how does that function and serve as a bridge um, for our students? Um, and so for me, I think it starts there, is, is pushing the boundaries. It's not just the content. It's not just the practices. It's not just the activities, but sort of how do I serve as a bridge across these different areas um, to get at what I think are the two most important things in any classroom. One of them is, is culture. Um, you know, now culture is, I'm now, I'm a social scientist, so I, <laughs> I need to define this because people will call me yes, if I don't yes, define this. Do. Um, all right. So the very fancy highbrow definition would be, um, the production and circulation of meaning, i.e. how do people make sense of their lives as they're walking through time and mm. space? I simply in the classroom would break it down even further saying like, do people feel like they are equal do people feel like they belong and are equal citizens of the classroom? Wow. Which is really the first principle is how do we democratize learning and education in the classroom? Um, so again, this whole idea of center, centering the margins, um, if we organize spaces around folks who are at the margins, that basic approach will work for everyone. Right. Right. Exactly. So it's really, how do we democratize learning? How do we democratize education? The second one, is really being mindful of who participates in the process of learning and belonging, right? Oftentimes, um, and this is something I had to learn from my own experiences, if I'm being really honest and candid, is that whenever I'm constructing an activity, a classroom, an experience, if you will, in that process of structuring, um, it becomes very, very easy to exclude at the same time. Wow. And we do it in really, really subtle ways that. Um, we often don't really think much about sometimes it's, uh, participation policies, which, you know, what does participation really mean right now with COVID? Right. Um, sometimes it's the activities that we assign. Sometimes it's the reading assignments. Um, something that a lot of my friends work on, um, is the curriculum or pedagogy, even culturally relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it sounds, you know, it like, it sounds obvious, but again, it's something that, um, can sometimes come as an afterthought. And I think the, the third one uh, is really around representation, this whole idea of, um, you know, you can't become what you can't see. And the way that I think about that, this third principle is how do we expand, you know, the horizons and the imagination of what's possible? Um, so many times right. where, you know, we as teachers, as educators, we have students who want to go on and do all sorts of really interesting and exciting things. Sometimes we, we might think it's outlandish. You know, the, the classic one is, you know, hey, Cisco, what are you going to be when you grow up? Pretend I'm seven. I want to be an astronaut. Yeah, I'm um, going to be YouTube. No, I'm terrible. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> you know, I'm not the greatest scientist. Please do not call me if you need help with stoichiometry <laughs> and chemistry. It ain't gonna ha it's not, it's not going to turn out well. I promise you that. Right? But, but it's, it's this idea that, you know, how do you expand even the sense of what's even possible, right? right? And I think there are subtle ways to do that, um, where it's not just, um, you know, tr showing that there are non-white scientists. I think it's also a matter of, like, who we include, include in the curriculum or who we choose to cite exactly. um, becomes really, really important. Because, again, in these very subtle and very unique ways, we can start to encourage students to think beyond. And I think it's not just, 
you know, at least for me personally, and I don't know if it was the case for you, Michael, please break this down for me, where for me and with my parents and with the uh, teachers that I had growing up, and thankfully I had phenomenal teachers um, who they weren't just concerned about what I could see in my local surroundings, right. but they really surroundings, but they pushed me to see something that I couldn't even imagine. And that was a, that was just whoosh, amazing. No, you're absolutely right. I I'm trying to remember, and it'll come to me later, probably when we're done with this, um, the stat that basically talks about the students that visit universities early, early in their lives are far yeah. more likely to not just go to one, but like to see themselves there and then to live yeah. there and thrive. And they begin to have these attachments to this idea of higher institutions of learning mm -hmm. super early in their lives. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I very much uh, resonate with that. You can't become who you can't see uh, for a multitude of reasons and not to, you know, if we can be a little bit more disclosed uh, earlier in the episode, we talked about the fact that Cisco and I have known each other now for three years. Um, and that was because I was a student of Cisco's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. I should have led fine. with that. I'm You're sorry. Fine. <laughs> uh, but I think this is most, uh, most accurate and most appropriate now. Uh, so I was a student of Cisco's and one of the things that was most meaningful, and I don't think I've ever told you this. Uh, one of the mo things that was oh, most shucks. meaningful for me was to see a brown man doing work that was meaningful, high quality, and at a hard to get into research institution. So if we want to talk about the value of quote unquote gatekeeping, which we can get into all of that stuff later, the value of gatekeeping yeah. gives you the ability to keep the value of the product high in a capitalist idea, right? And so mm -hmm. if it is hard to get in and it's even harder to work there, to see someone yeah. who is non-white in a position of, of power and who's actually educating you. You were my first brown uh, professor in my entire graduate experience. It was you. I have a big... I have a big, stupid smile on my face. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I just, I say that because it helped me between you. I have another friend of mine who is a professor. Um, he's also another brown man who's doing, he's a, he's a professor, like he teaches. Um, and then I've got uh, two colleagues that are black women who, they're colleagues now, but they weren't at that time. Um, and then another brown yeah. colleague, she's also a woman. Um and it was watching those individuals, you all here at the university between Duke and UNC, mm -hmm. you were the ones who told me, okay, that climb is not only like possible, it is, it is tangible. So when a job opened up, the one yeah. that I'm in, I applied mm -hmm. and I believed that I could actually obtain that position. And I believed that my yeah. ideas were good. I actually yeah. believed that about myself. And so that in and of itself, when we talk about the necessity of representation, not just in who's talking to you or some Michael Jordan poster on the wall saying that you, you know, you miss hundred percent of the shots you never take, like, great. But like, I need that to live in my life. And so yeah. I think that, you know, those, those things are really important. I also want to go back just briefly. I want to circle back to this idea of expanding sure. culturally relevant uh, uh, instruction. Um, and you briefly talked about it even just in your your conversation of who you can't become 
who you can't see, but but I, I want to talk about how you did a really good job to couch um, conversations of experiences that may not have been yours. How you how you centered those yeah. in the room by using your students who had those experiences to be able to talk about them, therefore bringing them into the space. And then you were able to like kind of shuttle. And I, I'm not not here to you know blow smoke. I promise that's not what's going to happen in the vast majority of these episodes. <laughs> okay, okay. This is just don't. a really good time to talk about <laughs> it because you know one of the things that uh, the reason that this is this makes sense to talk about now is because you you've done those things. I can talk from personal experience, having seen it. Yeah. But uh, but can you talk a little bit about what that cultural relevance in the classroom begins to look like for students? Uh, and begins to look like for instructors. What do you mean by that? Uh, the biggest aspiration that I have is building community is where it starts. Um, community is is so central to to everything, and you know it's being mindful um, not only of students' experiences, right. what they know, what they don't know, what are their hopes, what are their aspirations, um, you know, and really as as best as I can. Um, Depending on the context, uh, here at Duke, it's it's very much orienting everything around the American South as best as I can. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the and, and to give you a very practical example, and you know, there if you know in the class itself, uh, Michael, I know there's a there's a week where we talk about uh, anti-racism, the importance of history, and trying to add context as as best as one can. And one of the right. resources um, which is in the book. And you can link to it from the book is um, is around this whole debate around monuments in the American South, and right, really right. we're talking about public memory. We're talking about um, the different ways that we commemorate, and really what's worth remembering. Right. Um, Who's so allowed from, to be remembered? Exactly, absolutely. And so it's it's very much you know starting from you know really this place of what is a common understanding or a common point of reference in this particular location. Now here in Durham, you know, I, you know, the, the president of Duke university is Vincent Price. I I have the most respect for president Price because uh, in his first week on the job, he got rid of a Robert E. Lee statue on campus. And, um, and where was that Robert E. Lee statue on campus? By that was in Duke chapel. So if you walk towards the chapel and if you look to the right, and I believe um, it was the first one or was it the middle? Yeah, I think it's the middle. Yeah, it's I believe it's in the middle, but there's an empty space. And, you know, it, it's that kind of, you know, OK, something symbolically like physically used to be here, used to symbolize all kinds of things. Um, and now there's an absence. Right. Right. Um, I always that absence to me is really, really powerful because the question becomes with these kinds of relevant questions when we're talking about contentious issues is, does anything really take its place? Should it? If so, what? Right. Um, You know, and and that's something I know a lot of people are are asking right now. Um, I know there's a lot of efforts in Charlottesville is another example. New Orleans um, with the former mayor whose name is escaping me right now. but yeah, this question of monuments, public spaces, and so really just rooting a lot of these conversations on what's going on locally, what's important, and um, these kinds of conversations that are speaking to 
not only the community, but the glue that's keeping that community together. Right. Um, in, Phil- in Philadelphia, it was very much around inequality, Freddie Gray, um, issues around policing. Um, and at the time, it wasn't as much, I think, as it is now, but around uh, immigration. Now, of course, um, we had a, a different president. So that might be right. why, but you know, that's, um, that conversations unfolded, um, a little bit differently than when I was there. Um, but yeah, it, it starts with, yeah, rooting, you know, truly what's important and relevant to the, to the classroom and to the local community, because at the end of the day, you know, one of the bedrock beliefs in American education is that what happens in the communities is going to show up in the classroom. That's a really, really old idea that goes back a long time. Um, because it's true. Right, right. So that's where it starts. So, so I can't help <clears throat> but want to talk a little bit about the book's makeup, just briefly. Okay. So okay. you talk about uh, how there's certain experiences that you yourself have not had, which, yeah, I mean that's just a general power analysis and identity memo. But, um, how did you ensure that your work? was like this work of this book that was written how do you how are you ensuring that uh you can have a more balanced perspective of of being able to center in spaces that you may or may not have been in or have access to uh did you have other people who may have been a part of that and uh for those of you who are keeping score hint hint i might have been one of them can you tell us about who your editors might sure. have been <laughs> sure i'll i'll take a ginormous step back to tell you a little bit more about this entire construction process, you know, um, so, you know, I started teaching this class at Duke in 2015, uh, actually the, the winter of 2016, I believe. Um, and you know, between then and now I, I literally have written out about 60 to 70 pages of notes, um, notes, meaning personal reflections, possible activities. Um, you know, you're mentioning, you know, getting feedback, you know, quite frankly, there's certain things that I tried um, a while ago that just didn't work, you know, so there's a lot of trial and error in this process. Um, students who very, uh, I think, politely uh, pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, let me give you some, let me help you out here. Right. To, you know, you know, one of the things that I'm very big on is if there's something I don't know, truly don't know, um, I go to people who do mm. and I listen. Um, so with certain portions of this book, um, I'm going to give a shout out to Nick Antonici over at the Center for Gender, uh, Sexual and Gender Diversity on Campus. Um, Michael, we've known each other for, for three years. Um, so this past summer, um, I put together the book. As I mentioned, I had a whole bunch of notes. I sat down and started piecing everything together because thankfully my partner in life and crime, um, you know, basically said, Hey, you have a lot of really good stuff here. And I think a lot of people would get something positive out of it, out of it. Why don't you just sit down and do it? It's like, okay. Um, and you know, Michael, you certainly saw earlier drafts and we went back and forth over certain things. The second person I need to thank and give a shout out to publicly is Lauren Carley. Lauren is, um, well, I believe, yeah, she graduated with her PhD in biology. Uh, I'm, I'm not exaggerating Congrats. exaggerating when I say either like last week or this week, like it happened very, very <laughs> recently. Um, 
And Lauren is now a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Minnesota. Lauren is an incredible human being, again, who could speak to um, a lot of matters related to research mm-hmm. or a lot of matters related to framing. Um, very kind, very generous, and I think very, very honest. And so it's this iterative process of not only um, writing, reflecting, trying things out, in certain cases succeeding, in certain cases failing, but um, always trying to improve as we're going along was sort of at the heart of it. It's again, it's been a you know five, well, four years and change, almost five years now, right. and right. you know I'm very thankful for for the help. Um, for the insights, for the feedback, because it's just made it um, that much, that much better, that much stronger, and I think that much more relevant to um, to to many, many people. So, in that relevance, like, what are you expecting and hoping that this work will accomplish? Who's it for? <laughs> what do you want them to do with it? So, this guidebook is very much written for a general audience and. I deliberately am not using academic jargon. Um, I'm just not going to do it because most people I know, my family loves me. Um, (laughs) They will tune me out the minute I start using academic jargon. They they do. Um, And I don't blame them. You know, it's like if you go to a... You go to Christmas and somebody starts using big words. You're like, come on, man. Really? We're doing this? Okay. So can you do your best um, Oxford impression for us? <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to offend a lot of people if I do. No, my British accent is horrendous. Um, I do not have a British, uh, a posh British accent, if, a- accent, if you will. But um, it's it's written for a general audience. I really hope um, educators, whether that you're in K through 12, you're in higher education, um, um, pick it up, read it. If there's something that works for you, um, implement it slash adapt it. If there's something that doesn't work for you, by all means, feel free to ignore it. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Right. Um, but my goals for the guidebook are really fourfold. You know, on one hand, again, as we as we mentioned earlier, it's just to expand the contours of who gets to participate in classroom learning. Not only just you know in terms of students. But, you know, really opening things up and trying to democratize as much as we possible from our activities, from what we assign to even thinking about as as we'll talk about much, much later. But this whole notion of abilities or disabilities um, that I think is so critical, so important and not talked about enough. The second one is really just to empower educators and students to positively change the local environment. Right now, one of the things that really surprised me. Um, on this particular point is so many people want to make um, their classrooms and local context better. And without question, a lot of teachers that I talk to, both here in Durham, as well as folks um, on campus, want to do something. They want to make a positive change, but they're not quite sure how. So I think one of the positives and one of the benefits of this book, one of its strengths, if you will, is it walks through how one can do this. That's a methodological question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this question of how can we empower educators and students? The third goal is, you know, for, let, let's be frank. How do, we, how do we advocate for a culture of equity and democratic participation, right? So getting to this question of, you know, what are the obstacles to learning? What are minor adjustments that we can make? You know, you know we speak tongue in cheek about centering the margins, but truly how do we get rid of some of these minor obstacles 
for the, um, students who are at the margin so that they'll benefit everyone. Right. I think that is something, again, trying to flip this entire conversation on its head. And the fourth one is, how do we make practical and applied contributions to efforts, both large and small, that develop and sustain? And I think this is the real challenge that mm. certainly is going to be centered to a large portion of my life is how do we make this transition from going from equitable practices to creating equitable systems? Right. And I think the bigger leap is how do we make equitable institutions? Right. Um, right. Because in my mind, that's that's really the goal. And you know, to take a step back and put my academic hat back on is, um, and I'm not going to do it in, in, in an Oxford accent, so Come on, I don't man. apologize, Michael. I'm let down. <laughs> but this whole, I, you know, you know, but this whole idea of like, you know, we have this dialectic between stuff that happens locally and these broader macro level kind of things that influence us in ways that are sometimes direct and sometimes they're indirect. Right. Um, but how do we sort of work locally? to try to get up to the point where we can influence something on a macro level. So how classroom activities can get to the point of potentially influencing policies and practices can potentially influence um, uh, broader communities. To me, that is sort of the goal um, and the point. And I think where what this book is trying to get, and I think what a lot of these efforts are trying to get at. Right, right. Well, I guess before, I mean, we've been doing this for a little bit now and, and today, <laughs> I think it's appropriate for us to begin the wind down on the episode. But before we kind of uh, end, I, I do want to ask what kind of encouragement you would give the newbie, the person who has just picked up this book, who mm -hmm. maybe stumbled across this podcast, someone recommended it to them, this whole framing, this whole outlook the idea of comfortably centering the margins, like all that stuff, what would you suggest to them? How would you, uh, how would you express to them to stay in there in the, in the ring? Cause let's be honest, this is a fight that we're kind of up against. We are, we are actively having to go, you know, and to be equitable, to be anti-racist, to be, you know, womanist or, or feminist in, in our approach. Like we're actively having to engage systems that, are built in specific ways to undermine some of those things. So what would you say to the person who's brand new to this to encourage them mm. to continue? I always start with this one is that truly you have more power than you think mm. you, you really do. Um, you know, oftentimes we have more influence than we think um, on a local level. It's anything from, you know, how we encourage students, you know, what we decide to include or exclude in our classroom, whether that's on the syllabus, certain kinds of policies, um, you know, in terms of encouraging a newbie, you know, the first step, take it. Yeah. And then the next one. Yeah. And then look around and then see who else is on close to you. And then take the next one. You know, I'm a big fan of incrementalism, and I think yeah. with a lot of these things, um, that it's often the smallest things that have the largest impact, and that you have more power than you think. And in most contexts, in a lot of environments, um, 
you can just do it. There's nothing stopping you. And that's where it starts. You're absolutely right. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> it's hard for me not to think when you talk about that, um, a little bit, not to, again, not to trivialize more to, to kind of get it to sit in, in people's scopes. Uh, I don't know if you remember that like late eighties, early nineties, frosty, the snowman movie. <laughs> I don't, but go on. <laughs> so there's a song in there that goes, I think it was, uh, it was the episode about Santa Claus. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the name of the, it's like the winter wizard or whatever, but he sings, he says, this song's put one foot in front of the other. And like, mm -hmm. I, I think that in some ways that's like the, the theme song to incrementalism. Well, I mean, let, let's think of it this way, man. There's nothing, there's nothing more powerful than speaking with your feet. You're not wrong. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, I mean, truly we're talking about, and this is, again, we're talking about different ways we serve as bridges. Um, you know, man, uh, historically speaking, um, my family and folks from communities that I know and have visited, it would, they spoke with their feet. They left, they migrated, right. they, they sought something else that was better. Um, I think the same is true, um, in the black and African-American yeah. community. I mean, we have the um, great migration. We I mean, it's all the yeah, marches, all the yeah. uprisings that we're seeing. You see folks mm -hmm. out speaking with their feet in the streets. Yeah. There's, I mean, and so that's the part again where, you know, I think there's a lot of power in that. Um, so, yeah. And it's, again, this isn't something that can be done overnight, but you see its effects uh, how large changes happen a little bit at a time. Right. And a little bit at a time. Um, and that's where it's at. So I guess the last little bit of encouragement that I'm going to ask you to leave is for the lifelong fighter yeah. who's been in the ring, who this is round 12, who's tired, is yeah. exhausted, and is battered and bruised. What do you say to them? Uh, I, I, would, I would start with thank you. I really would. Um, you know, I come from a long line of folks who were not allowed to be in institutions like a Duke or a Princeton or a UNC chapter. They just, they weren't. Right. It was off the table. Um, and that was a life that to be frank you know somebody can you talk to you know somebody who's in the 10th or 12th round i don't it, my i don't exist without them so i start with saying thank you you know the the second thing is that our existence is proof of their success yeah both of us. And I know that success does not make up for lost time. But the fact that we were here means that they were successful. Yeah. So I, those are the two things. I think that the fact that this project exists, the fact that you have uh, a brown dude from Texas, uh, a black man from North Carolina who. Who's didn't have. Who's are doing both this. Both of my parents. 
my mom finally went and got her associate's degree a handful of years ago. And yeah. there was no secondary education in my or, or graduate edu- education, excuse me, in my family. Period. Period. Yeah. Yeah. And not to say that my parents weren't yeah. or, or, or my mother is not one of the most intelligent people that I have known and that my father is not one of the most intelligent people that I knew. Like that that's by no yeah. stretch of the imagination. Does that discount? Um, yeah. Discount that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that, that's what I tell, I just, I tell them, thank you. I don't know how you did it. And there are other people who are beside you, support you and love you. Right. Because again, you know, for a lot of the people that you and I probably know, Michael, um, they've been at it for exactly. decades. Exactly. Uh, I can't help but think of the, I think it's an African proverb that says you are your ancestors' wildest dreams. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other thing I'm thinking about too is, um, you know, cause I imagine we'll both be long timers, old timers one day. Um, that's the point, you know, but we, we do these kind of, you know, Hey, but you know, <laughs> I, I've got a gray hair, you know, whatever. Uh, just the one. <laughs> just one. <laughs> Coltrane's fault. It's Coltrane's you know, fault. Yeah, it, it, it totally is. It totally is. Coltrane's my dog. That's, that's yeah. He's a puppy, you know, but it, it's one of these things where I think at least walking into this kind of work, I've been at it for a while, you know, it's planting seeds whose harvests I will never see. Mm. Um, but the fact that you do see young folks um, getting involved, right. Uh, protesting, you see young folks um, running for office, yeah. And just trying in the ways that they can. Yeah. And you see that, and I can't help but feel encouraged. I agree. I agree. I will leave us with this lovely note. Uh, I had an opportunity to introduce or to interview, excuse me, not introduce. Well, I did get an introduce or two, but I had an opportunity <laughs> to interview um, a brilliant, amazing um, student at Duke. Uh, her name is Diana Sanchez. Uh, and we were having a whole conversation about justice and what that means uh, surrounding elections and voting and things of that magnitude. And she made the statement that the idea of an individual vote is short-sighted because we as a community are due communal justice. We together are the only way that mm-hmm. we together move forward. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I knew that as a, as a thought and a theory, but to, to hear it articulated in such a clear and concise way uh it has definitely been something that's just been on my mind a lot and i can't help but imagine and think that the work that you're doing through this book and hopefully through this podcast uh will help folks lean farther into the idea of communal justice because that's the community that you're building you're building a just community and we together get to define what that looks like so cisco you think we're gonna Come back again, do another episode sometime soon. I'll think about it. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm in. Count me in.
Thank you for tuning in to Centering the Margins. If you liked what you heard, you can rate, review, and subscribe to Centering the Margins on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Be sure to check back next Tuesday for the new episode. In addition, be sure to go pick up Cisco's new easy read, How to Teach Contentious Issues, a practical guidebook for educators on Apple Books. Hey, Cisco, tell us a little bit more about that 30%. Absolutely. 30% of all proceeds will be donated to Durham Children's Initiative. Durham Children's Initiative's mission is to create a pipeline of high-quality services spanning from birth through college and career for children and families living in Durham, North Carolina. There are more than 65 partner organizations and thousands of community members who actively contribute to the initiative. It takes a village, and we at Centering the Margins want to make sure that the village is still here post-COVID. Please go find and buy the guidebook on Apple Books. Your money's going to a great cause. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Um, so yeah, check us back out soon and uh, we'll have to come up with a better way to sign off because this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. All right. That's it.